Mark 11, 27 to t Mark 12, 12. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, ask then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, but everyone held that John was, really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for, for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, "There was respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the hire. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvel marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd so they left him and went away. Thank you, Roscoe. Just going to do some rearranging of the furniture up here, so just don't mind me. Yeah. Whoop. Thank you very kindly. Almost there. Whoop. great. I love having people to do everything for me. <laughs> it's way too addictive. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Roscoe, for reading those verses. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for taking us so far through the service. We're going to open up this passage. Uh, some of it may be familiar to you. Some of it may not. Um, but there is some great things that Jesus teaches us here. And we're going to find that out together. Now, as many of you will be aware, uh, I'm colorblind. It's not exactly a close-held secret. Uh, I'm not severely colorblind, at least not in my own opinion, uh, just colorblind in the red-green spectrum. 
Now, that's, I mean, that's not a huge issue by itself. That doesn't really affect me day to day very much. Uh, but it was a small problem growing up on a tomato farm. Um, I was a terrible disappointment to my parents, I imagine. Now, like, don't, get, don't get me wrong. Um, if you put a ripe tomato and an unripe tomato in front of me, I can tell the difference between the two. Like, that's pretty clear. I, I can get that. The problem is there is a whole spectrum between ripe and unripe that is very, very confusing. Like there is, there is endless shades of something between red and green. And it's that part that gives me problems. That's the part that I really struggle with. Uh, it was that part that led me to pick a whole bucket of not so red, as my dad called them, tomatoes, uh, and mix them with hundreds of kilos of red tomatoes, uh, and so get fired from that job. It's tough. It's tough. That spectrum is tough. Now, I think we, we kind of treat life a bit like that spectrum of tomatoes, between red and green. You know, you know, life has lots of different shades. Yes, on one hand, red. Yes, on the other hand, green. But in the middle, all sorts of shades that are just kind of a, a, a not really one or the other. And look, for some things, that's definitely true. For some things, that's absolutely true. We're not going to argue about that. But the problem is, when we take that idea and apply it to being a Christian. You know, clearly there's some people who are Christians. You know, there's no doubt about that. We, we know they are. And at the other end, there's clearly some people who aren't Christians, who wouldn't even claim to be and would refuse that quite emphatically. But then we say, there's people in the middle who aren't really either or, but they're on a spectrum varying shades of grey. And we think, well, who do we put there and how do we put them there? You know, maybe people who are good. Maybe they're a bit closer to this end. People who do the right thing. Uh, people who might call themselves a bit religious, whether they go to church or not. You know, they, they exist somewhere in that middle. And the thing is, we're quite comfortable with that idea, aren't we? In fact, I think sometimes we kind of like that idea that there's this whole spectrum of kind of kind of Christianity or kind of being a Christian. Because it's, it's kind of nice, isn't it? It means you don't have to be over here in that full-on crazy, uh, you know, way overboard Christian. But you could be a just enough Christian. Uh, Christianity light, you might like to call it. You know, maybe have some of the good bits without being, you know, that extremist that's just that little bit hard to get on with. And that sounds kind of nice. And we think in our minds, well, maybe that could really work. You know, maybe, maybe that could, should work. Until we meet this passage. Because I don't know if you noticed, but in this passage, Jesus doesn't give a middle ground, does he? Jesus is black or white. Jesus is in or out. In fact, Jesus is really intolerant. You might almost say Jesus is quite judgmental here. And that's better. That's actually better. And this morning I hope to show you why as we unpack this passage together. Uh, you might remember if you were here last week, I said that we're, we're kind of in a, a series of stories now which confrontation is, is the major theme. Jesus is, is butting up against the ruling way or the, the way of the people uh, and the religious leaders particularly. And we see that here. Uh, again, Jesus is in, in Jerusalem. Again, he's in the temple. 
And again, the religious leaders are on the prowl here. You know, these are the guys who, who govern Israel uh, in all parts of life. And look, maybe fair enough, maybe fair enough they're, they're shadowing Jesus' steps because he's done some controversial things lately, hasn't he? You know, he's really ruffled some feathers in what he's been doing. Uh, who is Jesus to just go around Jerusalem doing as he pleases? Like, how? And that's the question they bring to him. Come with me again to verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Uh, their question is pretty sharp, isn't it? <laughs> but Jesus' question, Jesus' question is even sharper. Um, it, it might kind of feel like a bit of a sidetrack. You know, they're asking about his authority and Jesus says, well, hang on a sec, do you remember that stuff about John the Baptist did? And you think, well, that's weird. But actually, there's a real link here. See, John, Jesus and John had always tied themselves together, hadn't they? Uh, before, that is, obviously, John's death. Um, John said, you know, a, a powerful, more wonderful one is coming. That was, that was his message. There's a greater one than I who's coming. And then that one came, and what happened? Well, John baptized him. See, what John is saying is, Jesus is that guy. Jesus is the great one who's coming, the one who is far bigger than I. And what Jesus is saying constantly is, I'm like John. Yes, greater. Yes, more important. But I am like him, very similar to him. His authority is similar to my authority, except mine is far greater. And so Jesus' question here about John the Baptist actually makes great sense because he's saying to the elders, or to the religious leaders, what you say of John is what you're saying of me too. We're tied together. And now the religious bigwigs, they are really in a bind here. This is a hard question for them. You, you see, you kind of get an insight into their turmoil. Look at uh, verse 31. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> it's, it's lame, isn't it? They finally get confronted. They finally uh, are heading towards a good answer for their questions. We don't know. <laughs> Translation, we don't want to tell you. We don't want to commit ourselves either way. You know, they're, they're in a bind. If they deny Jesus, then they earn the hatred of the people that they're trying to lead. If they accept John, well, then they'd be guilty of denying God's authority and Jesus' authority. They're, they're actually just too scared to come down either way, aren't they? You know, they're the ultimate fence-sitters, terrified to commit here. And so Jesus doesn't commit himself to them. Neither will I tell you. But he doesn't need to, does he? Because the story is quite clear. What Jesus is saying, read between the lines, we see what's going on. John is from God, 
Mark's made that very clear. Jesus has made that very clear. That means Jesus, the greater one, is also from God. Just like John, his authority is from God, but far greater, far bigger. It's not just his authority is from God, it is God's authority that he is wielding, that Jesus is wielding. And the religious leaders, they don't want to hear that. One, because it undermines their authority. In fact, it trumps their authority completely. But two, the implication is, if that's what Jesus' authority is, then they need to submit to that authority. They need to put themselves under that authority. Because that's the way it goes, isn't it? That's the only way to respond to great authority. If great authority comes to you, the only right response is to put yourself under it. To submit to it. You know, it's a bit like the difference between uh, yellow and white speed signs. <laughs> speed limit signs. You know, you know the yellow ones? You see them on corners. Uh, like, you're coming off the highway onto Castro Road, it says 35 kilometres. I made a mental note of that this morning. 35 kilometres. Do you do 35 kilometres on that off-ramp? I have never met anyone who does that. Uh, 60 kilometres, you know, maybe... But you don't follow those signs because they're just advisory, aren't they? You know, actually, I prefer the electronic ones. I, have you seen the electronic ones? They're blank, and then you come up to the corner, and if you're going too fast, too fast, it's like, it's like a challenge. Like, I can, I'll set that off. If only it told you how fast you were going. But anyway, that's a different story. But, but see, we ignore those signs because we know they actually carry no weight, don't they? They're just kind of like, yeah, here's what we think you should do to be really, really cautious. You know, no cop is going to pull you over for doing 60 k's around the Castor Road off-ramp uh, off because that's not a rule. They don't have authority, those signs. But the white ones, red circle, black numbers, just to remind you, those ones, they have authority, don't they? <laughs> we, we pay a bit more attention to those because if you break that, that speed limit, as many of you will know, it's expensive and sometimes risky. They have authority. And so we do roughly what they say. Well, Jesus doesn't just have authority. Jesus is authority. More than a cop, more than a teacher, more than a principal, more than a boss. Jesus is authority. Jesus, in fact, is God's authority. The authority of the one who made everything. The authority of the one who is above everything. The one through whom and by whom everything is and continues to be and works and holds itself together. He is the authority that made all other authorities. The authority that raises them up and casts them down. There is no authority that comes close to him. And that's Jesus. So therefore... Is to be listened to and submitted to and followed. Because we know how it works, doesn't don't we? You know, the greater authority disobeyed, the greater the consequence received. You know, if you if you disobey your teacher at school, you might get detention. If you disobey the warning signs on an army base, you might get shot. The greater authority disobeyed, the greater the consequence. So this is the greatest authority. This is authority. Disobey, fail to submit to Jesus, 
That's everything. Because he's everything. And that's the key here. That's the key to this, this story. When it comes to Jesus, there, there is no spectrum. There is no middle ground of sitting on the fence of saying, yeah, a little bit's enough. You know, not committing or fearing the reactions of others. That doesn't work. It's not like that. Is With Jesus, it is all or nothing. Now, let's, let's not get our categories mixed up here. We, we, sh- we don't need to think, therefore, that he's asking for perfect or absolute or 100% faith or the strongest belief. You know, that's not it. We, we saw that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Faith, faith like a mustard seed. What does he say to faith like a mustard seed? He says, truly, I will tell you. I'll speak to you. I'll show you. Whereas to unbelief, to a lack of commitment, this is what he says. Neither will I tell you. Small faith, weak faith, learning faith, that's good. That's enough. That's great. But with that faith, Jesus says, has to come submission. Because Jesus is the ultimate authority. He is not something you dabble in or trifle with. We need to. We have to understand that when we come to Jesus. Now, Jesus is not like your phone. He's not like Google. You know, you can just pull him out of your pocket when you kind of get in a, in, a, in a jam. He's your king. He's the highest authority in the universe. He is the greatest of all. Yes, he loves you dearly and personally. Yes, he cares for you and has even given himself for you. But he is still himself. He is still the king, the complete and utter authority to whom you and I need to submit ourselves completely. Not just when we like it, but always in everything. Anyone can come to him, and this is what is asked of them. Now, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then this is a helpful test of our belief, isn't it? Uh, Not just, do you believe in Jesus? That's a good question to ask. But, do you, are you, submitting yourself completely to Jesus? Because Jesus has the master key to your life. You know, he is the authorized personnel uh, with all access granted. There is nothing off limits to him. Every room of your life, without exception, now, that's hard. Let's, let's be honest, that's hard. And, and I know for myself and I, I know for you as well, there's places in our lives where we actually try to hold out against him. Now, we'd rather you didn't go there, Jesus. We like that place to ourselves. Sometimes we do it unconsciously. You know, sometimes without even really thinking about it, there's areas of our life where we never actually think about Jesus. You know, we never actually pray about those things or we never kind of think about what he would like in that. And we need to wake up to that and think, well, How can I consult Jesus? How can I talk to Jesus and submit to Jesus in this part of my life? But sometimes there's areas of our life where we consciously resist him because it's it's hard or it's uncomfortable or we, we suspect that in that area of life, Jesus might not like the way we're living or he might not be pleased with that. He might disagree with it, but we want it like that. And so we resist him. Now, I don't know what that is for you. It could be a a whole bunch of things. Uh, It could be your sexuality. It could be your dating life. Uh, It could be the way you conduct business. It could be the way you invest your money or spend your rest time or your holidays. 
It could be the way you use your words. It could be your thoughts or your fantasies. It, it could be TV watching, whatever it is. Jesus has come. He is the ultimate authority. And we ought not to resist that. We need to let him to go into those places and to shine his light into those places because as we've seen, his light brings life. Yes, it's painful. <laughs> yes, it's sometimes costly. But it's better. If you hold out on him, you miss the far better of being closer to him. So repent. Don't resist. Allow him to open that door and submit every corner of your life to his absolute authority over you. But what about those who continue to hold out against him? What about those who continue to deny his authority? Well, Jesus doesn't actually stop there. There's this kind of almost no time between the two halves of this passage. Uh, he launches straight into a story. And he drives his point home there. I'm just going to read from verse 1 to 8 of chapter 12 uh, and remind us how that story goes. Chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now again, remember, this is a, this is a parable. It is a teaching story. And it's not exactly a mystery who Jesus is speaking to and more importantly, who Jesus is speaking against here. Uh, the vineyard is Israel, that is God's people living under God's rule. Uh, and it's a really famous picture from the Old Testament. A, a whole bunch of times God's people are referred to as a vineyard. Uh, if you want to later, and I'd encourage you, um, go back to Isaiah 5 and have a read of the first half of Isaiah 5. And you'll, you'll see that picture unfolded there. Israel's a vineyard. God is the landowner. And the tenants, the tenants are the leaders of the people. The servants are, are God's prophets. And I don't know what your impressions are, you know, as we read this story and as you kind of picture this scene in your mind, but, but something that strikes me is it is exceptional here just how patient God is, patient the landowner is with these tenants. You know, see what he does. He, they reject him again and again and again. They, they're robbing him blind to his face. And even then, he's still patient with them. He doesn't evict them. He doesn't come in person. In fact, he goes to the point of saying, look, I really want these guys to, to, to live up to what they're meant to be doing. I'm going to send my son, my one son whom I love. Surely they'll listen to him. Surely that will set things right. Or not. They take the son, they kill him, 
they throw him out of the vineyard. What do you expect the landowner to do now? After such disrespect, after such violence, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? We know what's coming. But here's the question. Has the landowner stuffed up? I mean, has his plan gone bad? I mean, it looks like, it looks like everything he's tried has been an utter failure, hasn't it? You know, all his efforts have come to nothing. It, nothing's worked at all. So has he failed? Well, look at verse 9 through 12. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. So here's Jesus' point. It is a story of just how grievously the leaders of God's people had rejected him. So they haven't just tried to steal what's his. They haven't just ignored and beaten his servants. But in killing the son, they have attacked God himself. See what they're trying to do? They're trying to uh, rob God now of the whole vineyard and take it for themselves. They're making a personal attack on him. They're trying to have the good of God, the good that he has made, without God himself. And they will go so far to get that as to kill his own son. It's also a story of God's better patience. <laughs> How forbearing is he? I mean, what landlord is going to put up with this sort of behavior? Like one messenger, you guys are out. <laughs> like You're gone. But not God. He is patient. He is forbearing. He is good. And he will go so far as to send his beloved son to risk what is most precious to him to give his tenants a chance. But most of all, this is a story of God's better plan and better goodness. Because do you see what God doesn't do? God doesn't write his plan off. He doesn't say, well, this has been a disaster. I'm abandoning that vineyard. You know, cut it down, burn it to the ground, leave it by itself. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give up on his plan. He gets rid of the problem and he welcomes others in. See, God is not derailed here by human rejection or by human disobedience God's better way, God's better plan will come about regardless of what people do. And in fact, even better, what looks like a disaster, what looks like tragedy, is really God's success. What looks like disaster is really his success. Uh, I remember the first time I caught a trout fly fishing. Um, if you've ever tried fly fishing, you'll know it's, it's quite challenging. Um, not just the catching of fish, but actually the casting. Like, you are trying to, to throw a piece of fluff that weighs nothing with a really long whippy rod on a long piece of string. Like, just think that through. It's quite challenging. Now, I'm, I'm terrible at casting. I, I'm, I'm terrible at casting, but I am awesome at getting tangles. And it is amazing how good a tangle you can get just by waving a stick 
back and forth. Like, it's inc the knots are amazing, let alone the weird things you can stick a fly into, or weird parts of your body a fly can get stuck into. Anyway, beautiful day. Glassy, uh, calm, warm day, and I'm out in my boat pretending I know what I'm doing, uh, waving my arms back and forth frantically, hoping that it kind of looks what everyone else is doing. Inevitably, I get a sweet tangle. Like, this is, a, this is a huge bird's nest. Now, when you're fly fishing, you can't just cut the line because the line's very expensive, so you have to work back through it and, and untangle the whole thing, which I stopped to do. Uh, and I leave my fly just dangling in the water. It's just kind of drifting around as we float around, just about a foot above the weed. 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, I've finally untangled this enormous tangle. And now I think, well, you know what happens. You, you've got it, your line dangling in the water. Murphy's Law, it's going to sink to the bottom, get a snag, and you'll probably lose the fly and half of the line. So I go to pull it in, and I pull it in slowly. Sure enough, it's heavy. I've got a snag. <laughs> or not. <laughs> then it starts to pull back, <laughs> and it starts to fight. And sure enough, I've caught a trout. <laughs> and a minute later, I, I finally land it, and it is my first fish on fly Caught by accident. <laughs> that is the story of my life. Now, it might be tempting to think that God works in kind of a similar way. You know, that we have a God who just makes the most out of accidents. I mean, that's actually kind of a comforting thought, isn't it? You know, imagine if God can make the most out of our accidents. That sounds good, you know, that he responds to the things that go wrong. You know, sending his son was a disaster, but he thought, well, here's how I can turn that to good. Well, actually, that's not how it works at all. God doesn't respond to these accidents. Actually, God plans for them. Do you see what he says there? That stone that the builders rejected, that's the capstone. You know, that's the most important stone in the whole building. Actually, that's the link that draws this whole thing together and makes it work. This, this son who was rejected, he's the key to God's plan. And in fact, God's plan is so good, it was actually his very rejection that made the plan work at all. It was Jesus' very death on the cross that completed God's plan. Do you, do you remember what Jesus said as he hung there on the cross? John records it in, in, his, in his gospel. Do you remember what Jesus said? It is finished. Now, he doesn't just mean it's done, I'm dead. The word is completed brought to an end. God's plan completed there. Because there, in his rejection, in his death, the sins of anyone who believes in Jesus, yours and mine, are taken and their punishment paid. Completed because there, on that cross, the way to be part of his vineyard, to be part of his forever kingdom, is opened for others like us. It's no accident. It's no adjustment of God's plan in, in light of some unruly tenants. This is God's plan come to fruition because this is how good and great and powerful and sovereign God is. And so therefore, there's three things that this parable teaches us, three things that it gives us. Firstly, it gives us joy. Because the vineyard remains. God hasn't given up on what he started. His kingdom stays and his kingdom is open. It's open to anyone who trusts in Jesus. Not just a select group of people, but all who believe. 
It's joy because it's open to us, even to those who rejected, even to those who rebelled. Anyone who repents is part of this kingdom. Secondly, it's a warning. Don't go down the path of the tenants. You can't have the good of God without all of God, without his authority and following him. You can't try to exist somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. You know, kind of getting the good of following without the really hard or challenging or sacrificing stuff. It, it's, 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 that cherry picking, it doesn't work. It's simply an attempt to really be rid of God and to, in essence to kill him and take his stuff. We've seen who God is. How will the landowner treat those who do that? Thirdly, this story is hope. Because the kingdom is, and the kingdom is yours in Jesus, if you believe. And it is a good kingdom. It is a kingdom that he loves, that he built, that he died to save and restore. It is a kingdom of glory and of perfection and of love. It is a kingdom forever. And entry to it is yours. And one day, all its blessings will be yours too. So yes, Jesus is black and white. <laughs> Jesus is unrelenting. There is no safe middle ground with him. And whilst that's scary, whilst that sounds really hard or harsh, it's better. It's better because he's good. It's better because he's patient. It's better because he's kind and he's welcoming, even to the weakest of believers. He is the linchpin of God's plan. The one who came to give his life so that you can enter in. Him being the king and the sacrifice. He asks your all. He asks for your submission. But he gives you all. He gives you himself. He is the good king. So come and follow and be part of his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we just stand in awe and praise you for the way that you have unfolded and fulfilled your perfect plan in Jesus. Lord, in him you have built your kingdom. In him you welcome people in. And you did it even through his rejection and death. For Father, there every obstacle that stood in our way, every sin and rebellion and rejection, he took so that forgiveness could be offered, so that entry for others like us could be secured. Father, we praise you for your patience and your goodness. And we ask that you would help us not only to joyfully believe and be glad for this news, but to submit to him as well, to submit ourselves to his absolute authority. Lord, we confess that we try to walk that middle ground all too often. We confess we want to have it our own way. We want to pay lip service to you, but retain control in some things. Lord, we just ask that you would forgive us for our foolishness, that you would forgive us for our disobedience, and that instead that you would help us to submit to Jesus in every corner of our lives, that he would be the perfect authority over us and the better way for us to live. 
Teach us what this looks like. Break down where we're resistant and shine his light into every corner of our life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.